From the Melanina Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona, this is Keeping Up with Public Health Cross-Sector Collaborations. Hi, and welcome to Keeping Up with Public Health from the Western Region Public Health Training Center. I'm your host, Allison Root. This week, we'll discuss the connection between digital equity and health, initiatives and research to improve digital equity, and the role of coalitions in building digital equity. We have Jody Early from the University of Washington Bothell and Colin Reinsmith, the founder and director of the Digital Equity Research Institute. Hi, I'm Jody Early. I'm a professor in the School of Nursing and Health Studies at the University of Washington Bothell. And hello, I am Colin Reinsmith. I'm the founder and director of the Digital Equity Research Center, which is located at the Metropolitan New York Library Council. Colin, tell us just a little bit about how the Digital Equity Research Center came to be and how long has it been? Sure. So we're actually coming up to our one-year anniversary. So just before that, I was a full-time faculty member, a tenured professor in the School of Library and Information Science at Simmons University in Boston, and, you know, sort of took a leap of faith to go out somewhat on my own, so to speak, and was very fortunate to be invited to start the center at Metro, call it Metro for short, the Metropolitan New York Library Council, and was invited to start the center because of really this moment that we're in with as you know, $65 billion of federal investment in broadband and digital equity. And really, it was just an incredible opportunity to focus all of my energy full-time on research to be in support of this unprecedented investment. So it's really been a, a wonderful opportunity. I wasn't familiar with a lot of this work. And as I started to read about it a little bit more, I wasn't even sure about certain terminology. So if we could talk first about digital equity and what that means to you and how you see different terms being used like digital inclusion or digital justice. Digital equity, and I know that we have some evolving definitions, but the way that I look at it, it's, it's when people and communities have the information, the technology, and the opportunities to fully utilize digital resources and they have the capacity to use those in their daily lives for health reasons, education, and just to be a participating member in democracy. So equity is about making accommodations. We're not all starting from the same place. So it's giving people the opportunity to really benefit from those digital resources and digital access. And Colin, how would you describe digital equity if you had to say it in like one sentence? Because equity is involved, with digital equity, it's really about centering people over technology. I think that's really the, probably the easiest way maybe to think about it. So that was the short answer. Just a slightly longer response is that, you know, I think a lot of people have seen it as a problem of who has technology and who does not have technology. As Jody, I think really pointed out well in the definition that she provided, but really at the end of the day, we know that not having access to technology is really just one of many sort of inequities that particularly low-income people face, people of color, people have been disproportionately impacted by a lack of many other things in society. And so I think an equity perspective allows us to look at broader structural historical inequalities in society and connect them to the work 
of digital equity and digital justice. When we talk about justice, I think what's really important is that there's some sort of restorative element to that rectification of the digital harms that have been done, digital exclusion, based on those historic and systemic systems of oppression. So it's really leaving out, you know, groups of people. So the important part of justice is to make restoration of that harm. I found a definition of digital justice on the National Digital Inclusion Alliance website, and the definition is attributed to the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. Spaces through which people can investigate community problems, generate solutions, create media, and organize together. The National Digital Inclusion Alliance has done a really wonderful job providing definitions. I've been involved with NDIA for a number of years. The Detroit Digital Justice Coalition has really helped, I think, the whole field understand uh, really the goal of this work, the digital, whether it's digital inclusion, digital equity, that really it's about digital justice as a goal. And they have a wonderful set of principles that they developed actually many years ago it's actually during the Obama administration, during the last investment, which was the BTOP program in 2009-2010, where grassroots organizations came together and said, you know, this is a problem that impacts Detroit residents. How are we going to come together to solve that problem? And through that work, they created the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition and a set of guiding principles to guide that work. You know, maybe we could talk a little bit about dig digital inclusion. Digital inclusion really refers to the activities that are necessary to ensure that all individuals and communities, including the most that are, are disadvantaged, have access to the use of information and communication technologies. And then there are components of this, like having these resources be affordable, having broadband internet be affordable for all, be available for all, having quality technical support, actually supporting people to be able to know how to use the internet, connect the internet, or be able to use the technologies that help them to connect to so much of our daily lives. So we live in such a highly connected, digitally connected world. We're talking about not just connection in terms of communication, but for many, it's food, it's jobs, it's health, it's vaccination. It's so much of our world now. So NDIA often talks about digital inclusion being the what, the sort of the work that happens in communities every day, as Jody, I think, just laid out really well. And then digital equity sort of being the goal. And, it, and it's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about that recently, and I would actually disagree. I think digital equity is also part of the work, right? I think folks who, who center equity in this work, particularly health practitioners know this well, how to center equity. I think that we also need to embrace digital equity as part of the work and the set of principles around digital justice is probably more of the goal that we should be thinking about. And the other reason why I say that is, and I'm sure we'll get into the, the uh, Internet for All bill and the IIJA, but one of the incredible things that we see in the law is that there's a recognition from Congress that digital equity is a social and economic justice issue. And that really, to me, becomes an incredible opportunity to connect the work and centering equity 
within a social justice perspective. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity. So I think there's also a moment uh, to your question, Allison, that I think there's an opportunity now to have these robust conversations to think about what, what do we mean when we use these words? What is the digital divide versus digital equity? I think it's important because they all do, they have a different history behind each of these words and phrases, and they also have uh, different meanings for different people. So I think the more we talk about it, uh, as things change, there's an opportunity to both have common language, which is, of course, important in this work, but also to be constantly critical in a productive way to kind of really question some of the underlying assumptions around some of the definitions, but also to, you know, as we evolve in this work together. I think, as Colin mentioned earlier, it's more than just access, right? Uh, it's more than just not having access which is causing divide. There's so many other factors, including having digital skills, building digital skills and capacity is really important part of that as well. And to, when we're talking about digital justice, to be able to understand those reasons for the divide and to acknowledge that a lot of what's happened is because of a systemic oppression, like racism, economic oppression. So I think it's important that we recognize in our definition of the digital divide, that it's not just about access. And I just wanted to mention one other thing too. There's a really fantastic article by Virginia Eubanks called Trapped in the Digital Divide. And uh, she talks about the, the problems of framing and who's doing the defining and who's doing the framing. And the wonderful thing about the article, which is sort of a precursor to her book that came out a couple of years later in 2011 on uh, around the same work, she did work with um, low-income women at a YWCA in upstate New York. And during her research and work with, with the women that she worked with, she found that the women of the Y actually had a different definition of the digital divide. And she found that by actually asking them through participatory methods to sort of draw, you know, sort of what, what does the digital divide mean to you? What does it look like to you? And so the drawings that came out of that exercise were really about some of the things that they talked about were sort of knowledge divides, right? The sort of the assumptions, like challenging the assumptions around, you know, who is the expert when it comes to skills? And that is something for me that has really left an incredible uh, impression. And at the end of the day, it was really about having an equity lens in this work, which means why don't we ask those people who are most impacted by digital inequalities to tell us what this means. Because from that perspective in the work and the research that Virginia Eubanks did and others have done, have realized that actually, if, if we take the time to deeply listen and understand people's everyday experiences with technology, even if they don't have technology in the way that we think technology should be had, then we might actually be better informed about strategies to address the digital divide. And so that work has really been impressionable to me, has really led my own approach to research in this space that, you know, let's not always go in thinking we know the answer or what the definitions are, that it, I would be remiss if I didn't bring that important research up and to remind all of us when we're thinking about these definitions, let's remember to deeply listen to folks who are most impacted. Your research is in that style, right, of your getting at what is it that people need or what is their experience, right? So how have you been able to engage some of these populations and what have you found so far? One of the things that 
I was really fortunate to be able to do back in 2016 was to do research to help inform the FCC's Lifeline program as they were thinking about developing a broadband subsidy program, thinking about Lifeline, which traditionally had been a subsidy for telephone access to help low-income folks gain access to telephone. There's a program developed during the Reagan administration in the 80s uh, to a program that could support broadband access. And one of the things that I learned in doing research across the United States, this was funded by the then the Benton Foundation, I learned that when asking people about sort of barriers to access to the internet, there was sort of a common, well, I would say misunderstanding that a big reason why people at the time, this was during the, again, during the Obama administration, realizing that a lot of people sort of assume that for those people who did not use the internet or did not use computers, it's because they just, you know, it wasn't relevant to them, right? Research from the Federal Communications Commission and Pew and other places had shown that a lack of relevance was one of the major barriers to broadband adoption. And actually what I found is when you actually sit down and talk with people, a lot of people don't, particularly from the people I talk to who live within a low income, don't want to admit, right, that they can't afford the internet. People have pride. They don't necessarily want to talk about things that are difficult to them. And community-based researchers and folks in the community development field, I think, know this very well. But this wasn't part of the broader policy conversation. And so what I found is that actually it was the high cost of internet that kept people from being able to have internet at home. And I brought these stories from folks all across the country uh, in about seven different cities uh, in the United States, one rural community, that were all saying the same thing and talking about their inability to pay for the internet. It wasn't about their willingness to pay. It was about their ability to pay. And this is something that I was really fortunate to be able to bring to the White House, to members of Congress, the FCC, to really push on that assumption that it was, you know, poor people just don't understand, right? So that's why they're not using the internet. So I think that's one of the, just one example of the advantages when you talk to people and you, you know, sort of go out and especially when you're invited in to do research in this way, that you really can gain uh, important perspectives that can have important, in, in this case, sort of policy impacts and help shape the debate and conversation in this area. I definitely want to echo what Colin is saying about shifting the blame and and not really looking at, you know, making it a, a matter of, well, it's not relevant. I think in our nation, we also have to call out our market economy as driving so much of this and people's experience with having the internet, using the internet. We know for so much of how we are right now, that big calm really controls where we invest and having the infrastructure, which is what's so great about this bill, we have a lot of work to do. So it, you know, if we look at the research on tribal lands and with Native and Indigenous people, it's not necessarily that they that people do not want access in those areas. It is literally because calm companies are not investing in those rural uh, or working with tribal communities for this. The other thing I wanted to mention in just doing the work in community health, community programs in my area is especially with my work in Latina communities is we got to also look at language inclusion and how people are able or not able to use internet and technology. So for many 
first generation youth, they they're serving as language and cultural ambassadors for their parents, for their grandparents, people living with them. And so uh, I think COVID-19 is a really great example and access to how we signed up for vaccination. People not being able to see, first of all, have internet access to actually sign up in this manner, but also when we're talking about language, having to rely on others to, to get that information. And so we need to do a better job also in just being more culturally inclusive and actually, you know, thinking about language and, and why that matters. Let's talk about the topic of social determinants of health. Jody, you wrote an article in Health Promotion Practice titled Digital Disenfranchisement and COVID-19 Broadband Internet Access is a Social Determinant of Health. Would you share a little more about your thoughts on social determinants of health and digital equity? Yeah, I think that uh, at least within public health in my field, we haven't really talked much about this issue. And as I was, again, working in community during the pandemic and talking and, and just seeing for myself that this was often not something considered when we were doing community outreach, mutual aid, I'll give a couple of examples. The Northwest African American Museum was one of the only organizations that I knew of that during the pandemic was giving out and supporting people through Wi-Fi hotspots. And so as opposed to like, let's say my university that was making laptops available, but then people couldn't use them because they didn't have access to the internet. So it really brought to light just how important digital equity is when we're talking about health equity overall. They go together. We can't have one without the other in today's society. That is so true. I've read a little about different initiatives for cities to offer Wi-Fi hotspots. Are either of you familiar with those initiatives? Yeah, I've been really fortunate to have the opportunity to look at hotspot lending particularly because public libraries have played such a, a leading role in, in offering hotspots even before the pandemic. And so I worked with a couple of colleagues when I, a number of years ago, I worked at the University of Oklahoma and my colleagues at uh, University of Texas, Austin and Oklahoma State University had a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to look at hotspot lending in rural libraries. And that was really fascinating because at the time, this was about 2018 or so, we knew a little bit more in urban areas the what was going on in terms of hotspot lending with libraries, but we knew less about what's going on with rural libraries and what are the possibilities. And so one of the things that, that I learned from that, which is true, I think, anywhere, any, any part of the country, is that hotspot lending really has to do with the availability of access to cell towers, because oftentimes the as we know, the those the little mobile hotspot devices connect to a cell tower, um, and then through that, or sort of, will give you access to the internet. And so, it's really about availability. For example, in rural Kansas and very rural Southwest Kansas, what I found actually was that, particularly for first responders, that you know, there's sort of it, they would have to rely on different. Wi-Fi hotspots in different parts of the county because there were different cell towers and different providers in different parts of the county. So they would carry around multiple hotspot devices, right, in, or, in order to stay connected to provide the services, these vital community services or county services in this case. So that was the sort of rural picture. And I think that's probably still much the same today. 
hopefully that will be addressed through more broadband uh, infrastructure across the country. It's really interesting because I have a, a study that I'm, I'm working on right now, a paper that I'm writing on the benefits of rural hotspots for homeless couples, actually. And this is something that is really interesting and, and not present in the library and information science literature, more so probably in the public health literature, understanding the benefits of communication, like mobile phones and internet for for homeless couples. And we know that uh, there are benefits to being in a couple uh, as in a homeless population that helps get people out of being, being unhoused and moving to a situation where folks are housed. So anyway, so, you know, it's really interesting that that one way you could you could say this is that I, I think there's a lack of research, actually. I think there's still more research to be done to understand, you know, what does it mean for, for youth to have access to hotspots versus, you know, older adults. Um, certainly the older adults having access to a hotspot, particularly during the pandemic, we knew it was a, it was a lifeline, right? For older adults who were maybe alone uh, at home and could not leave the house and didn't weren't living with anybody. And so I think they continue to be important resource as in a toolkit that could be used, but they're certainly not, as a lot of people have said, the answer. But the pandemic certainly gave us a lot of a lot more examples about how hotspots could be used to benefit folks who can't afford access to the internet at home. I'll just add that here in Washington, we had a Connect uh, Washington coalition. It was a pretty broad alliance of companies, libraries, museums, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, legislators that were part of this. Um, and the goal was to be able to provide not just hotspots, but also technology um, to use grant funding, to use donations, to do this during the pandemic. But, you know, now we have an even bigger opportunity with this infrastructure fund. States can actually apply. So these organizations, um, you know, the work that's been done over the pandemic can really magnify with this opportunity at the state level. And also just nationwide, I mean, the idea is to expand availability of broadband internet access. So why, you know, so hotspots are, as Colin said, it's a great part of a toolkit, but the bigger picture is really to create that infrastructure that creates, so people won't need the hotspots. So I think we should mention about the internet for all that was fairly recent still that provided billions of dollars for improving high-speed internet infrastructure and access. Could you say a little bit more about the internet for all and how you see that funding starting to be rolled out? And what do you think about how that's going so far? This is really uh, just an incredible moment, really, that we're in. I was just returned from the Net Inclusion Conference in San Antonio last week, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance Conference. And it was quite a moment for folks who have been working on this problem for many years to really, you know, this is a moment where, you know, $65 billion through the IIJA that was passed in November 2021, I believe, by President Biden signed into law. And the thing that's interesting about it, though, at the end of the day, it really is, it's still focused on infrastructure, really. The $65 billion, I mean, the majority of the money is really focused on building out broadband infrastructure where it currently doesn't exist. And we need that. And that's absolutely a wonderful thing. It is hard to believe, though, that $65 billion will not be enough. There have been studies done, even some that I've been a part of, that have shown that 
hundreds of billions of dollars per state is required in order to connect every single household in a particular state. So $65 billion, while it sounds like an enormous amount of money, and it is, I think roughly it really works out to about $100 million per state, I believe. It's based on a, a, a somewhat com complex calculation, but it's an important calculation to understand where internet does not exist and people who can't afford or don't have access to the internet today where it doesn't exist. So it's going to make a big difference, um, but the work will still need to be done. I'll also just say that what it is doing, which is incredible and really fantastic, is it's mobilizing people. It's bringing people together across the country in each state and, and, and um, territory in this country to work together to solve the problem. And I think that is almost more important, quite frankly, than the money and the investment because we know that when the money runs out, we're still going to have this this problem. We're all gonna, we're, we could have this conversation in five years. We'd love to talk about the impact of this investment. Hopefully, we we're talking about that and how much we've been able to accomplish. But more than anything, I think it's for to me, someone who studies sort of what I've been calling digital equity ecosystems, folks who are working together in communities to solve the, these problems. A lot more people will be working together. More awareness will be raised. There will be more infrastructure in the ground. But when it comes to digital equity for those most vulnerable in our communities, there will still be work to be done. But right now, the state digital equity planning is happening. Every state and territory are developing their state digital equity plans. And when they do, they'll submit that to the National Telecommunications and Information Administration in order to receive the money over the next five years to uh, put this into practice, to put their plans into practice. So it again, it's a really exciting time and there's a lot of work to do. Everyone can be involved. Uh, to share. I think a lot of states are asking for public comment or will be in the in the coming months. And uh, so really everybody, anyone who cares about this issue has a role to play and, or can play a role. Um, and they can contact, I believe, their state uh, broadband offices and digital equity offices to find out how they can support this effort. One of the things here in Washington, in addition to as we're talking about just getting broadband infrastructure access, um, I love what Colin's saying about community and also the fact that this um, legislation allows for more community involvement. So we're also talking about here in Washington about tailored technologies with communities at the root of those designs. So it's, it's a broader conversation than it was before, but it's really rooted in that community participation. And when Colin also talked about just the importance of advocacy around these issues. Now is the time. So everybody plays a role in this. I've seen some health insurance plans setting up programs for people where they're providing digital tools or digital skills trainings, which I think is really fascinating because a health plan might not be an obvious place to be doing that type of work, but I think it really fits nicely. It's just one way of increasing access and building skills. Have you seen other ways that digital skills trainings or digital tools are being made available? The other opportunity right now is that this goes back to the law is in order to receive funding, uh, each state and their digital equity plans need to show how their plans actually will support the state's other objectives, health outcomes, educational outcomes, so on and so forth that states are all working for to help residents live better and healthier lives. And this came up actually when 
Secretary Raimondo, who's our Secretary of Commerce, visited the Net Inclusion Conference last week, actually, and saying that there's an opportunity both in the state government and federal government to weave digital equity through everything. Every state agency or federal agency or even just, you know, local businesses uh, and others can really play a role, but particularly within government to sort of see how digital equity connects to each of these other uh, outcome areas and health equity and health outcomes are certainly one of them. Hopefully we'll also see a systematic change, a structural change within how the delivery of programs and services so that it's not siloed, that we'll see how this can be woven across. And so I think there's a, a big opportunity for that now. One thing that I've noticed, and I've been a part of lay health promotion programs in my community for a long time, and we're starting to see more, there are many names for this, Promotora, Peer Navigator, now Digital Navigators, being able to help people in their community on how to use technology translation support when they're talking to a healthcare provider. Many states have digital navigation programs and some of this money is being used at the state level to train digital navigators. And again, it goes back to community. So it's community members that are being trained to do this and to serve as a resource. So we're starting to see more of this and especially within healthcare and the connection to healthcare. That sounds great. I do want to talk a little bit about tools that people may find useful if they're working in this area. And one is, Colin, you have available a digital equity ecosystems framework, which could be something that people listening may want to use. Could you share a little more about the framework? And then also, if both of you could share your thoughts on ways people may want to use mapping tools. The digital equity ecosystems measurement framework, or the DEEM framework, which we call it, Coalitions are playing a huge role in this work, both informal and formal coalitions. And this is another area that the digital inclusion and equity field can really learn from the public health field. I know I'm learning a lot from uh, the public health literature and on coalition development. And so the report that we came out with in the framework is to help coalitions as they grow and develop. And the importance of coalitions, which the National Digital Inclusion Alliance has also talked about, is that you know folks are working together rather than separately. They can do more by working together. They're sharing resources, information, local coordination, helping with advocacy, planning efforts, but also in measuring impact. And so the framework that we put forward is the result of two participatory design workshops with over 30 coalition members from across the United States who came together for two workshops so that we could learn what would be most helpful for them. Briefly, the framework is set up at sort of three levels. One is the coalition health layer, which is what a coalitions need as a whole to be successful with their work with their members and having impact on the ground. The second layer is the member strength level layer. So individual members, which might be schools, libraries, hospitals, uh, local governments even are involved with these coalitions. What do they need to be successful as members of coalitions? And then there's the community impact layer, which is really about what everybody wants to know is what is the impact of all this work? Are coalitions actually making a difference in their communities? And so the framework actually provides um, a way to think about this work in a structured way, but also a couple of measurement tools that coalitions can use to understand their, their health 
uh, strength and impact in communities. I'll just say briefly that mapping is still complicated right now. It can be a tool in the toolkit, but unfortunately it's very difficult work to map the United States and to show where access is and where it's not. Um, particularly for vulnerable populations who really need the digital equity focus the most. There are some tools out there that can give people some ideas, but when we're talking about mapping, what we're not talking about is the greatest percentage of people who are underconnected or don't have consistent access. So it's really hard to even think about how to enumerate that. So in the article that I wrote, I used some data from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Um, that provides county level percentages of households with computers and smartphones. There's also some Census Bureau data and mapping, and there's some other surveys like Broadband Now that are doing this work. And I think it's important as we approach that to kind of think about who the sponsor is and how that data might differ and what they're counting as access. So it gets kind of complicated. But I think people can go and explore some of those tools just to get an idea. What was really interesting for me, I'm looking at a place like Seattle, Washington, which was one of the most digitally connected places in the country and some of the highest income earnings here. But within a block, you know, you could see that connection might be 2% and compared to, you know, 95%. And the point I was trying to make in that article is there's a lot of different factors aside from just the broadband infrastructure itself. And we can't make assumptions out about a place like Washington in relation to like, let's say more rural areas in New Mexico. We're dealing with these issues and it's not always about whether you're in a particular community. It's all the factors that we talked about today. It's not just the infrastructure itself. Yeah, infrastructure alone will not create digital equity. I also want to mention that, Jody, you recently contributed to a book that was published titled Be the Change, Putting Health Advocacy, Policy, and Community Organizing into Practice. Community organizing and coalitions are a large part of public health work and work that really leads to some of these changes that we're hoping for. Could you share a little bit of your work from the book about community organizing and how that relates to digital equity? and how health departments might play a role in community organizing for digital equity. The book is really for everybody to see how in their everyday lives they can play a role in advocacy. Within public health and healthcare, we tend to focus a lot on policy and less on advocacy. And so the book really helps people understand what are the differences between, let's say, when someone says advocacy or lobbying, so basic definitions, but also it's really to help people see ways in which they can get involved. When we're talking about coalition building, there's a whole chapter on that. And this work's been going on for decades. So the book really has 23 different chapter co-authors who have been doing this work for a long time, many of them women. And they lend their voice in giving their expertise and how to do that. And the most important thing to do is to work at the roots of the community. So yes, the health department, for example, might be able to have the infrastructure to basically be able to support a place to meet or maybe has some resources that could benefit the coalition. But 
we need broader relationships. We need to have people at the table in those coalitions that really have lived experiences and have leadership within the community, not just grass tops leaders. So in the book, we provide some examples and some tips, but really the voices from the people who are doing that work on the ground. What new opportunities might exist for other collective partnerships that we haven't brought up so far? Anything in particular that you're thinking, oh, we really should connect more in this area? To channel the executive director of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, Angela Seifer, any business that benefits from people learning how to use the internet to take advantage of the products and services that a business is offering, you know, say Amazon, just throwing that out there or other large companies. I think there's a real interest actually within the business community too, about how they can help. And that is just something that I think is a a very under examined or explored area. While there certainly are many businesses that are playing an important role, both at the community level and and beyond uh, private foundations that might be associated with larger businesses, but you know, any, anybody that's making a profit off of uh, the internet can say, well, maybe we can play a role in giving back and helping or developing or or offering services in a way, because that seems mutually beneficial, quite frankly. I mean, internet service providers, you might think that's an easy one, but also really any business that benefits from more people using their services, what role can they play actually in bringing uh, people on? I think it's also very specific to different communities at the community level to say there might be a large employer, right, in a community that's playing an important role, but could benefit from investing in digital skills training to actually do more. I'll also just add the community-based organizations that have been, especially during the pandemic, just working to serve communities to provide, you know, basic necessities for every living. I think now is an opportunity to consider how digital equity plays into this work. Many of them already have, but now there's funding available. So who can you partner, who can they partner with? Uh, In addition to these businesses, you know, what kinds of these coalitions that have started, how can they deepen their work by taking advantage of some of this funding. The other thing I wanted to say is just how much more research is needed. So Colin, your center is so timely and so needed. We really do need more research on this area. We need more examples of what's working, what's not working. And the last thing I'll say just from my public health background is we need more about this in public health. We need public health to also understand and healthcare and I think healthcare is starting, it has shown, right, that they're interested in doing more with telehealth visits and investing in certain things. But let's add on to that, the language inclusion. Now is the opportunity that we can refocus on that. And in public health, we can really put this as part of our strategic plans in looking at health of communities. Um, what are we doing in this space? I have yet to see really a county level plan that's inclusive of that here. So I would love to see that. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you both for sharing your work. It's really interesting to hear about, and I look forward to seeing more research and seeing improvements in this area. Thank you for this opportunity, Allison. This podcast is supported by the Western Region Public Health Training Center. The WRPHTC offers continuing education credit hours for certified health education specialists. If you are looking to obtain credits, please visit our learning portal at learn.wrphtc.arizona.edu and select the Keeping Up with Public Health podcast to take the post-evaluation survey for this episode. 
A transcript of this episode is also available on our learning portal. You can find more of our work at wrphtc.arizona.edu. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at wrphtc. A special thank you to Eric Healy for his help in publishing the show and creating the music for each episode. 